Hey, it's Jamie and Christine, and we're so excited to announce a very special Off the Gram event. On October 5th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Off the Gram podcast goes live, virtually, of course, for the ultimate pajama party, and you're invited. Join us for an intimate chat on mental health and resiliency with the one and only Ariana Huffington. Tickets are $45 and deliver not only a Zoom link to listen in live, but a super fun party in a box packed with luxe goodies and snacks to enjoy during the show. And the best part, 100% of ticket sale proceeds will go directly to Ronald McDonald House, New York, a charity that allows families to stay near when their children are sick and need them most. Head over to offthegram.eventbrite.com to get your tickets. Once your order is processed, we'll email you for your mailing address to send you your box of fun. Get ready. It's a good one. This will be a night of pampered wellness and community brought to you in the way only Off The Gram can. We don't apologize by saying, I'm sorry you felt this way. You say, I'm sorry for what I did to make you feel this way. Welcome back to Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Hi guys, this is Megan. Okay, so needless to say, our show last week was a doozy and we're following the rest of the world in scrambling to keep up with this crazy F-Factor story. But so much has happened in the last week that we felt it was important to unpack it today in part two episode. So let's chat. Thanks, Megan. Heidi here. So in case you missed episode number one, we suggest going back to listen. But here's the overview of what went down. We talked with Emily Gallis, the influencer and entrepreneur who became an unlikely whistleblower on the diet plan known as F. Factor. Founded by celebrity dietitian Tanya Zuckerbrot, F-Factor has been embroiled in an ongoing scandal for selling allegedly potentially faulty products that made people sick, as well as having what some consider a flawed diet method geared towards disordered eating, as well as a toxic internal corporate culture. Yikes. We were also joined by Liz, a former private client of Tanya's, as well as a yoga client of mine, who relayed her traumatic experience as a patient in the practice and shared her story of survival from a deadly eating disorder that left her at 76 pounds. I shared that when I began working with her, she was so frail, I was frightened to touch her, but I am so grateful she let me in at that time so we could work on healing. And we're grateful that sharing her story on last week's show was a continuation of that healing journey for her. Finally, we spoke with Lauren Slayton, founder of Food Trainers, a New York City consultancy dedicated to weight management and sports nutrition, to discuss the nuances of the diet and try to get to the root of the most problematic areas. Thanks, Heidi. So Jamie here. Okay. So over the weekend, Tanya went live on her Instagram feed with a statement, which many felt like was too little too late and offered no apologies or a promise to examine and evolve her products, rhetoric, or corporate culture. And people were pissed. 
We've been following closely as this story unfolds, including reading the thousands of comments from both fans and detractors alike, many simply stating their disappointment in how this message was handled, which I will say, as a former PR executive myself, has been rather hard to watch. Today, we want to unpack that response and look forward to what's next in this crazy story. A few topics we felt needed to be addressed include the guar gum controversy, da, 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 disordered eating, and the ethics behind taking on an eating disorder client as a weight loss specialist, and kind of taking a step back to look at the response to all of this through the lens of a crisis management or PR pro, because sheesh, there is a lot to say here. To do that, we'll be joined by three guests. Okay, so Megan here. First up, Heidi will lead a discussion with two experts in the food space for their expert opinions on the latest details released around the protein powders and products. We're grateful that Lauren Slayton is joining us again after spending the week doing a ton of research on the claims that have been made to bring us some updated information from her expert point of view. And we're also being joined by Erin, a.k.a. food science babe on the gram. Erin is a chemical engineer, I love STEM women, and food scientist determined to clear up myths about food and the food industry with evidence-based information. Hey guys, Christine here. So next, Jamie and I will chat with a young woman named Alexis, who goes by Wellness Alexis on the gram. She was a former devotee of the F-Factor diet. In fact, her Instagram account started as an F-Factor fan page of sorts. Like many, she feels lost by Tanya's response, and it caused her to change her tune. In the past two days, this story has taken a sharp left turn that no one saw coming. So we're going to get the whole story straight from the source here today. Jamie here. Finally, as a former PR exec myself for over 15 years... It's impossible for me not to watch this all with a critical eye, knowing how I would have advised my own clients to respond to such a scandal. A scandal is a turning point for any brand, any way you slice it. And the handling of the fallout determines the salvageability of the business. So to speak on best practices for reputation management, we have one of my favorite people, Stacy Heuser, the principal of Narrative, a PR agency that handles clients ranging from boutique fitness brands all the way up to Fortune 500 companies, including a few little-known brands you may have heard of, like McDonald's and General Motors. I worked at Narrative for six years prior to pivoting to do NYC FitFam full-time. And there's no one I respect more than Stacy and her partner, Jackie Brockman. Not only are they two of the leading experts in the field, they are a shining example of how to run a company right by appreciating your employees, treating everyone with respect, and saying thank you for hard work. Okay, I'll stop being snarky and we'll leave the now multiple on-the-record reports of a toxic corporate culture at F-Factor out of this because this is only an hour show and we have a lot to get to. Thanks, James. Heidi here. We are so glad to be rejoined today by Lauren Slayton, founder of Food Trainers and a leading New York City dietitian, as well as food science babe, who literally makes being a food scientist cool and is all about debunking myths. Hi, ladies. Hello. Hi. 
Okay, so Megan here, and I'm just going to start, but first I want to be super, super clear. We're here to provide a platform to tell the overarching story. There have been so many claims of this being a a witch hunt or a smear campaign, and this couldn't be farther for what we're trying to do. I think people really want to blame heavy metals or some other tainted toxins for the weird medical fallout from the powders, but from what we're understanding at this point, it's just not that simple. And Erin, since you're the food scientist, I'll start with you. Tanya has now released a COA, which has everyone up in arms over the use of guar gum. And then it turned out in her IG Live, she corrected us all and explained it was PHGG or partially hydrolysized guar gum. I mean, I'm lost. Can you explain the difference? Yeah, so um, people didn't actually really even need the C of A to know about the guar gum. Cause that Should is we just pause and the... say, what is a COA? Because I'm wondering if people listening yeah. don't even know what a COA is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, It's not the true. CIA, and it's not, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> so it's the Certificate of Analysis. So basically, when you work in a food company, um, if you're producing a product from all the ingredient suppliers, you obtain C of A's from them. So so a food product company that develops products would communicate to each ingredient supplier what they want to see on that on the C of A, um, you know, micro, micro requirements, um, heavy metals. So you sort of, as the food manufacturer, um, let the ingredient manufacturers know what you want to see on that certificate of analysis so that every time you get a new lot of that ingredient into your facility, you check the C of A, you make sure like the micro requirements are good. You know, there's not salmonella in it or E. coli or anything like that. So they are lot specific. So you like me when I work in the food industry and, um, you know, every lot, every ingredient that we get in every lot, there's a there's a unique C of A associated with each lot. Um, and so on that basis, a food manufacturer could could reject a lot and say, no, this is too high in whatever bacteria they're testing for, or if it's a heavy metal. Um, so that's sort of what C of A's are used for. They're is not, anyone they're, regulating this or is this on the manufacturer? Like, it does is there some regulatory board saying, okay, let's make sure you're in compliance with your COA, or is it just on the manufacturer? Yeah, so I mean, the FDA obviously, like, regulates foods. So um, I don't know if these these are regulated as supplements or foods, but supplements are less regulated than foods. But as far as like each lot that is on the manufacturer, you're not going to have the FDA, you know, checking each lot of every ingredient of every manufacturer, you know, in the country. So yeah, a lot of these things um, are part of what what you call a HACCP plan, which is a hazard analysis, critical control point plan that food manufacturers use. And CFAs are just one small part of that entire plan. Um, you know, there's a ton of paperwork involved. But yeah, that's just one of the things that that food manufacturers use to make sure that the ingredients that they're getting in are safe. And I mean, at the end of the day, you have to remember, too, it's going to fall back on the food manufacturer if there is, you know, some sort of salmonella contamination. Um, so obviously, they're not just going to release something, even if they see like, oh, there's a lot, there's some salmonella in here, they're not just going to release it. So it is on the food manufacturer, but like, that can completely destroy, you know, a food manufacturer if they were to re- release something that would make a bunch of people sick. So guar gum was this red flag ingredient. What the heck is it? And what's the difference yeah, so, between partially hydrolyzed guar gum? <laughs> yeah, so guar gum, which is the one I was familiar with, and I, I've used guar gum. Um, so it's used, it's from the guar bean. So 
I'll just talk about guar gum first and then I'll get into the other one. But so guar gum, they're both from the guar bean, essentially like they come from the starchy part of the bean. Um, so guar gum is a polysaccharide, which is essentially a large chain carbohydrate and it's a soluble fiber. So when you mix it with water, it essentially forms a gel. Um, so it's used in very, very low percentages in things like um, salad dressings. Um, you see it a lot uh Back in the 90s when the low-fat craze, you know, <laughs> was around, you would see it a lot in things to sort of mimic um, the mouthfeel. So when you take fats out of dairy products like yogurts, ice cream, milk, um, you know, it's kind of thinner, like it doesn't have that thick mouthfeel. So you would add some guar gum back into it to get that thicker mouthfeel. Um, so, so it's an ingredient used at lower than 2%, um, the FDA has upper limits um, for its usage because it can cause some, you know, GI distress if people have it at too high of percentages. When you say um, so 2%, is that 2% of all of the ingredients in a serving? No. Well, so so when you formulate a product, um, you know, each each ingredient is going to be in the product at a certain percentage. So let's, let's say it's a bakery product. I think, I think the, the upper limit for a bakery product is like 0.35%. So it would be the percentage of that formula essentially. So it's an additive in products at a very, very low percentage, just used as, um, you know, a thickener, a, a binder. It's used in gluten-free breads to sort of make the dough rise because when you take gluten out, it doesn't have the same properties. So, um, so that's what guar gum is. So partially hydrolyzed guar gum comes from the guar bean still, but essentially it goes through a process where enzymes break down these large carbohydrate chains into smaller carbohydrate chains. And so it isn't as viscous. It's not as thick when you mix it with water. So it's still a soluble fiber that is soluble in water, but it doesn't create that gel like guar gum does. And so um, it's essentially just used as a prebiotic fiber. Um, it's used as a supplement. So I kind of looked to see what it was used as because I'm not familiar with it. You can, you know, you can put it in beverages to add some fiber, stuff like that. You can put it in baked goods, um, those kind of things just to add a little bit, a little bit of fiber. Um, the thing is, is you know, the products that I have seen it in and the supplements, they are typically, I mean, they're like five to like maybe 10 grams of, of this. The short name is PHGG. So I'll just call it that, <laughs> that from now on. So yeah, the, the, the serving, I mean, I think you can get even little like cans of it and just, you know, put it in your smoothie or whatever, but those are like maybe seven grams of serving. So in these powders, it's in there at, you know, it's 20 grams of fi fiber, which equates to 24 grams of PHGG per serving. I don't know much about the diet, but, um, you know, I have heard people say they take multiple servings of that a day. So, I mean, when you add that all up, it can equate to quite a bit of fiber. So it's not necessarily a safety concern. There's, there isn't an upper limit as far as food goes, but it is something to be aware of. So if you are you know, reacting negatively to it. I mean, it is quite a bit of fiber to just be adding to your diet if you're not used to a lot of fiber. And even the supplements that I did read, you know, they said these were servings of like five to seven grams a day. And they were even saying like, ramp it up slowly, maybe try half, see how your body reacts. So, I mean, going from like barely any fiber in your diet to like potentially 60 grams of this a day could obviously 
cause some adverse, you know, reactions. So it's not necessarily that it's like, uh, not following FDA regulations or, you know, it's something, you know, obviously it's not something hidden. It's something right on the ingredient panel. Um, but it is quite a bit of fiber. So totally. Thank you so much. (laughs) And Lauren, we spoke about this with you on the last episode, and I know you've done a lot of research on guar gum and, PHGG uh, over the past week. What have you found in the research and by speaking with companies who use this additive in their products? Yeah, so I mean, I'll be totally transparent because some of us can admit mistakes. And um, I didn't even know there were varieties of guar gum, nor did some, you know, many of the RDs that, you know, I consulted with when I was um, preparing for the first episode. I don't use fiber powders in my practice. Um, and so I, my association with guar gum was what Aaron just described as a thickener, as, you know, sort of a minute part of um, a product that can be dangerous in higher doses. So I now have learned that um, PHGG is indeed less viscous, so and therefore less dangerous, less you know less likely to cause a blockage or some of the issues as easily. Um, but I don't think the issue of quantity has been addressed by the company at all. And um, you know, not to repeat what Aaron said, but. Um, a list of references were given by the company we're discussing when they were sort of explaining PHGG to their audience. So, you know, like the dork that I am, I went to the references, go to the original source. And as Aaron had said, I would say five to seven grams were, you know, well over half. There was um, 11 grams used and 20 grams used. There are three companies that use um, PHGG by a parent company called Sunfiber, um, I heard from Sunfiber and, and Bulletproof, which is a great biohacking company. Um, and um, I wanted to see. Um, so, yeah, one of them said they, they use six grams, six grams. Each, each of the products that use it use six grams. And I asked them for an upper limit. And they said, you know, we don't have a known upper limit. Um, again, as Erin had said, realist- realistically, I would not recommend more than two to three scoops a day or that would be overkill. Again, overkill is debatable. But um, he And then I just, for reference, two scoops of this would be 7.5 grams and three scoops would be, uh, you know, 11.25 grams. A day that the founder of this company, a typical day for her had 80 grams of, um, of fiber, which is even more of um, more grams of PHGG. So um, of which company, Lauren? The company we're all discussing this scandal. Okay, I, yeah. it almost sounded like you were talking about bulletproof still. So I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, no, no, no. So all like basically the the general usage in studies and you know sort of in products that exist is somewhere in the five to seven range per serving. A couple of servings would maybe be reasonable. But there's two issues. You know, for me again. It's the total amount of fiber. Um, one of the studies that used that I found that used a, a large amount of PHGG was in rodents. So who knows if rodents are bloated? Like who knows how rodents are feeling unless the rodents die? I mean, you could test them for a bunch of things, um, but humans are definitely different. And also just the danger of ramping up fiber quickly. So if somebody isn't, doesn't have a very good diet and you go from 10 grams of fiber to 80 grams, you would have a lot more issues than if you, you know, sort of stage that, um, approach that gradually. So Aaron, you had, you did have the uh, chance to examine the COA. Was there anything else that you noticed about it that seemed kind of odd or like, was the rest just kind of really standard ingredients? 
I mean, it was pretty standard. The, you know, the, the heavy metals that were tested were, were trace metals. I did the cal- calculations and it wasn't really, you know, a safety concern. Um, I did pass it off to a food safety expert that I know just to say, Hey, like, does this raise any red flags for you? And, you know, he was like, not really, you know, looks pretty standard. So as far as that goes there, you know, there wasn't really, you know, it was within the micro requirements and the, you know, it was obviously negative for salmonella, E. coli, those kind of things. So, um, yeah, I don't think it didn't raise any red flags as far as, as can far I, as those things. Can went. I ask Aaron a quick question? Is that yeah, okay? Of course. Uh, Aaron, I just, I don't, you know, you're the expert. So the company released one COA, I believe for one yeah. lot. Wouldn't they before claiming that everything was fine, have to know the lot that made people sick? Yeah. So that's the other thing too, when everybody was demanding a C of A, you know, like I was kind of like, okay, but also, yeah, exactly. It's one lot. So, I mean, if somebody is making a a complaint, you know, typically you would say, what lot do you have? And, you know, like, we'll look at the C of A, you know, for that. So, I mean, yeah, obviously it's, it's one C of A that's, that's literally just like one lot. So who even knows if any, if, if that was the lot that people were experiencing issues from. So, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to say, but from what they did release there, you know, there weren't any red flags. And would any of those, like, there are so many complaints about mold. Would any of that be in the COA? Like- yeah. So there's, um, there's yeast and mold counts and those looked fine. Um, so I did see some pictures that people had baked with the, with the powder and then, they had, um, I guess their baked products have, had gotten like moldy quickly after that. But I mean, that would be more of a function of the, the moisture of the finished product. Like I saw a picture of some cookies and they looked really like wet, like they didn't look really dry. So if it's in a wet environment or like a humid environment, like that would have more to do with the bacteria and the mold growing on it than it would. Because also you're putting that, that powder when you're baking, you're putting it through a kill step in the oven. Um, so obviously that's a safety measure when you're baking it. Um, so yeah, that would have more to do with, you know, does it have too much moisture in it? Also, I mean, there's other ingredients being put into those baked items too. So it's hard to say with just being given like a picture and a recipe, it's like, well, I mean, I don't know what, you know, like, was it really, was it really like wet? Did it have a lot of moisture in it? It's, it's so hard to say. Um, but I didn't see anything concerning as far as the, the yeast and mold went on, on the CO, C of A's that were released. The one lot, right? Yeah. The, okay. right. <laughs> the one lot. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you Would so much. Would there have to be some backlog or file of previous COAs? So like if complaints were from two years ago, three years ago, is there, would they have to serve these COAs at some point? Yeah. I mean, they should have, they should have, you know, obviously everything's on computers now, so they should have, um, you know, they should have C of A's from every lot. I would assume that they wouldn't just get rid of them for any reason. So, um, yeah, I mean, they should have it for every lot. So, yeah. And Aaron well, and Lauren, within your industry, is this any kind of a moment where guar gum is going to be, you know, put under the microscope, so to speak, and more regulations? Or Like, is this a moment where, well, people are getting sick, we maybe need to look at this ingredient a little bit more deeply and maybe... Well, I mean, I'll say, you know, I'll be the first person to say in my semi, you know, deep dive into this ingredient, um, the ingredient compared to guar gum in large doses, it, you know, does have, you know, a safety record. Although 
I think the question is, does it have over time using this quantity? That's, you know, sort of um, a a big question for me. Um, But again, and I'll echo what I said last time, um, you, you know, we're all scratching our heads and like looking at like all the layers of this weird onion, like, I, all the company needs to do is to tell us that they're doing the same, you know, um, they could, I mean, I, I'm just thinking if I were them, perhaps it's one lot that's making everybody sick. So before you say nothing's wrong, maybe just, you know, sort of gather the information and we can all stop talking about this. <laughs> Hire totally. food science, babe, to do a deep dive, <laughs> fix the problem. <laughs> totally. So Lauren, In a moment, we're going to move on to another interview with a couple ladies who are pretty pissed after hearing Tanya's statement, particularly regarding how individuals with disordered eating shouldn't do F-factor and that she, quote, wouldn't take them on as clients, end quote, when we know that she did. Hmm. Can you just please state once again, for the record, your personal opinion on working with disordered eating patients? Yeah, well, I, I think, and I've been trying to gather information. I, you know, I always love true crime. So um, I, yesterday, um, there was a segment with one of the dietitians who um, worked at this company, formerly worked at this company. And one thing that she brought up, which made sense in terms of eating disorders, was that for the most part, and again, I'm not an expert in this company, um, everybody who came in was given the sort of the same system, protocol, educational system, one size fits all was the term that she used. Um, so aside from like a weight loss client or a prenatal client, um, aside from nobody probably in a private practice should be getting a one size fits all approach, you certainly can't replicate, you know, sort of the same protocol for a weight loss Um, client as you would for uh, a client with a history of disordered eating or an eating disorder. Um, And the other thing is just, I mean, to take on a client, especially like Liz, who you had heard from, um, no registered dietitian, even, even if that's what they do solely, would take on a client like that without also having a therapist and also having, you know, sort of a, a plan if somebody had to go inpatient, et cetera, you need a team be, beyond the dietitian, even the most well-versed um, eating disorder dietitian. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of red flags from what I know as to what Liz mentioned, how it was approached. Even the mix of having, you know, an, an eating disorder client in an office space in, in the same sort of conversation with weight loss clients um, can be triggering. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And I think that's what this all boils down to, right? I, first of all, I just want to thank you ladies for joining us. This was really enlightening. And like I said, like it, this is not a witch hunt. This is not a smear campaign. No one's trying to find problems where there's not. But with so many people out there struggling with various components of this as kind of a byproduct of following this lifestyle, the question really is like, what is the problem? What are the What is problematic here? And, and let's talk about it. And I think that's what everyone has been looking for her to do since day one. And I think that's why everyone is so fascinated to watch all of this is because they're not really getting the information that they're looking for. And that leaves us all trying to unpack it. And we'll continue to do that 
you know, until we kind of help people get to the bottom of it. Just but one thing, I think we're all looking, you know, for this to be handled, like how like humans, empathetic humans handle things. Like you mentioned PR, um, you know, everyone said this is ha- being handled so poorly from a PR perspective, but it's not being handled from a PR perspective. It's being handled from a bottom line perspective and from, you know, a lawyer who I'd heard the term was like, you know, deny until you die. So if your goals are protecting yourself legally and, you know, preserving your bottom line, I'm not defending it, but that, I think that's how they're handling it. And we're just all looking for like, you know, but, but what's, where's the people part in all of this? Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's what we're trying to give a voice to here really on off the gram and why we came back to this episode. We just feel like it's lacking and, you know, it's happening in in some forums, but we wanted to provide a really kind of, you know, holistic level-headed way to do it. And the part having you guys here today is a big part of that. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thank Thank you guys for being fearless. Okay. Jamie here. So this has been a fascinating 24 hours to say the least. To give you a bit of perspective, on Tuesday, we reached out to Alexis, a.k.a at Wellness Alexis on the gram to see if she'd join us on the show. We had read her complaints, which seemed very valid, and we knew she wanted to chat with us, and we wanted to chat with her. Christine and I hopped on the phone with her right away for a pre-interview, and we scheduled her interview for today. We're recording this on Thursday. In the approximately 36 hours in between, here's what went down. On Tuesday afternoon, Alexis received a DM from Tanya asking if they could have a phone call. Alexis let us know this would be taking place. She let us know after the call that it had been completed and that she was choosing to keep the conversation private, which we totally respected. On Wednesday, Tanya began teasing that she'd be going live on Instagram to discuss disordered eating. We thought, wow, great. Maybe this is going to be the start of a new dialogue or accountability. Hey, so Christine here. Being in the middle of covering this story, we of course tuned in. What we heard made our jaws drop open. It was a recounting of her phone conversation with Alexis, including a myriad of veiled insults from calling her very young to accusing her of following social media blindly instead of the steps in her book to finally threatening her publicly in front of thousands of viewers for recording their phone call. Whether or not she did this, we're disturbed that she would throw a 21-year-old girl under the bus and open her up to potential cyberbullying, something that happens a lot when Tanya's community decides they don't care for someone online. We remain determined to provide a safe space for people to talk, along with others like Emily Gellis and those who have put a spotlight on this story and many victims involved. So we have Alexis here with us today to share her take on F-Factor as it pertains to disordered eating. Thank you, Alexis. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So, Alexis, this is Jamie. I want to start by asking, can you just kind of share your story, how you started with F-Factor and kind of what ultimately happened? For sure. So I was introduced to F-Factor by some girls in my sorority my junior year of college. Um, I didn't I liked the taste of the protein powder. I know controversial, but I like decided to use that over time, bought the book that summer, but I didn't really start the diet specifically until March when quarantine started because um, I didn't have control over my food. I lived in a sorority house and then that summer I worked at a place where they provided food and then it was my senior year. So I started the diet um, in March along with my Instagram account. 
And uh, at that time, I began doing step one, following every step that was outlined in the book and also taking the social media advice that Tanya herself would give out um, in her lives, on her stories, etc., as well as the community around a factor. Um, at that time, even as, as soon as April, I developed these extreme hunger pains to a point where nothing I could eat would satiate me. I would message my doctor to be like, I don't understand why I'm having these pains. And she was like, ma'am, you need to eat something. And I was like, I don't understand if I'm following this diet, like specifically perfectly, then I should be, I should be full. I should be fine. That led to a cycle of binging and restricting for me that continued until June. Um, I must say I was alone in my college apartment because I'm immunocompromised and couldn't travel home. Um, So that's why I was like doing, I was like, okay, there's no excuses. I'm just going to like do this diet. And then as soon as I got home and started celebrating my graduation, um, it was around the time of June. Earlier that June, I had developed a little bit of a uh, concern with Tanya herself simply because of her response to the Black Lives Matter movement that was starting up again at the time. And I was a little bit put off by her her lack of a response for a few days. So that's when I sort of started moving away from it. But then over um, time, as more allegations came out and Influencers Truth reported that it was Emily Gellis who was posting people's uh, experiences with F-Factor and more specifically the powders, it gained a lot more traction and people in my community that I developed friendships with on Instagram started talking about how they had restrictive eating patterns and it sort of, everybody started sharing their story. I shared mine at the same time. At the time I still had very pretty small following and I was just upset with it. Um, And we've all known what happened. You all saw what happened. And then she posted her live and in her live, she mentioned the book so many times that I decided to comment and say, you mentioned the book all these times, which you don't practice, which you preach online. Um, and you also, the book came out in like, I don't even know, like 2013, the powders aren't mentioned in it. So it doesn't really feel like this is the appropriate time to be using that. Um, so please just take accountability for what you post online and how it can be misconstrued. And we're talking about, sorry, uh, to just to kind of put context here, we're talking about the live that she did over the weekend. Um, so that's what you had seen, and it had rubbed you the wrong way. So you started commenting on some of her Instagram posts to that end, correct? No, I actually only commented on that live specifically. Wow. Um, I said, which was, I think, on Sunday or Monday, and I, that's what I said was, I, was what I just mentioned, yeah. Got it, got it. And Alexis, I know you mentioned that it's clear that you don't blame the diet for a health choice like anorexia, but it's it's definitely clear that something in the F-factor culture or message seems to skew many women in this direction. Um, so if you want to explain a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, I think that this diet promises everything that everyone wants, which is being able for a lot of college age women like myself, the ability to drink alcohol while still losing weight is a pretty big thing. I mean, when you're in college, like you can't go anywhere without like alcohol being shoved in your face. So when that the eat carbs, dine out, work out less, like for a busy young woman um, like myself, that sounds amazing. And the way she promotes it online, it seems like it's attainable because she does it every day and shares every day how she lives the F factor way using quotes here and she I think that that's sort of what the allure is there what ends up happening however is that when you read the book it's funny there's so many things that you can't eat on step one 
rice, sweet potatoes. Yes, you can have half of a banana, but don't forget a banana is the same as white bread. Like there's a lot of things you can't have real pasta. I didn't eat real pasta, sweet potatoes, etc., for such a long time. And I must say, like, even though I didn't start doing step one fully until March of 2020, I still was following the diet lightly. And at that point was still afraid to eat carbs. I was still afraid to eat sweet potatoes and potatoes, which are things that I've loved my whole life. So those patterns developed over time, watching these Instagram stories and reading this book. So, I mean, I think that it, what comes with it is that it says there's no restriction and you can live your life. But when you dig deeper into it, nobody on F factor is eating or nobody on F factor step one, which is the most promoted thing is eating rice, pasta, sweet potatoes, bananas, quinoa, oatmeal. Like when I saw people who like were, I found through F factor eating oatmeal on their page, I was like, Oh, they're not on the diet anymore. I just saw this morning, actually, on Emily's, um, one of her Insta stories, she was showing clips from different, you know, lives and messaging that um, Tanya had put out. And it was a demonstration of Tanya making a smoothie and showing and holding a banana saying, um, guys, this is the equivalent to one slice of white bread. Would you really put this in your smoothie? And then she said, like, ew, gross. Like, she was just, you know, it was just the, the messaging was coming out, like you're saying, it was very disturbing to say that you can't even put a banana in a smoothie when that's a, you know, a piece of fruit. Well, let me ask you this, Alexis. So, because I want to get to Tanya's live from yesterday where she, where she literally went on her feed to her hundred thousand plus followers to talk about you, to, to call out a 21 year old girl. And I got to tell you, uh, I know that in all of our careers, me and my co-hosts, we all, have taken pride in mentoring young women. It's something that's very important to us. Um, I'm always the first one to kind of, you know, uh, when I've worked in, in corporate America for the last 20 years, I would tell the, my young interns, pull up a chair. Let me teach you how to write a press release or do a thing. Or, you know, if you want to stay 15 minutes late, you can come do this thing with me and I'll introduce you to this person. It's just, it's part of the joy of my life. I cannot imagine putting a young woman on blast, especially as a, you know, a, a, a mid-aged successful woman to feel the need to do that. It hurt my soul. And I thought your response was so beautiful and tactful. So can you tell us a little bit about how you feel? Because I really respect your response to this. To be completely honest, I feel very badly for Tanya in that she feels the need to I guess, move away from the 10,000 plus complaints of issues with F-Factor and use this experience she had with me as a crutch to avoid talking about deeper issues. My mother always tells me that hurt people hurt people. She always tells me that. You're a wise uh, 21-year-old. <laughs> I love you. I have the best mom in the world. And I've been through a lot. I think that she felt that like talking to someone as young as me would make it easier for her to prove herself when in reality, like I, I am wise beyond my years because I have been through so much in my life and my mother had me at the age of 16. And so she's taught me so much as she's grown up sort of with me about the way to treat people. She's an early childhood educator, well, uh, I'm the oldest of eight kids, so I've been dealing with a lot growing <laughs> up. And um, obviously, 
I just feel bad for her. I really do. And I do hope that she, I honestly, I was talking to my boyfriend about this last night and I was saying like, if she finds it within herself to recognize that she was wrong and to apologize to people, I would still forgive her. But I do think that it is incredibly sad. Um, I find it very personally, like obviously hurtful, but I do understand that hurt people hurt people. So I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to have a little bit of empathy for her, but at the same time, it was gross. And there is a power structure here that she's exploiting. And maybe it has to do with my age, but whether or not she recognized my race and all of this as well, I do think that that has implications too, because as soon as you do this, like the trolls are already saying like pretty disgusting things to me. Like when you unleash cyberbullying on a black woman, it's a lot deeper rooted than doing so on a, on a wealthy white woman, for example. So I think that there was a lot going on here. I think that it is incredibly gross and hurtful, but I absolutely just want people who are dealing with really deep issues here to know that they're not alone and that like it's not their fault for following someone who told them that what they were doing was okay. Yeah, I really think you just hit the nail on the head. And I, I, what we thought that that live was going to go one way yesterday. We were watching it and we're like, wow, here, okay, here it comes, you know? And then it was like, left turn. <laughs> we were Alexis, like, it's Meg. Can I ask you a question though? So when she, when you were on the phone with her, was she apologetic on that call and then did a 180? And then were you shocked by the live? So the call was 45 minutes long. It started off with her interrupting me multiple times, telling me that I was yelling at her. I wasn't yelling at her at all. It's like, you can hear my voice. I was just talking. Like, there were plenty of microaggressions in the call, but, you know, I'm not going to share that with anyone. I just was a little bit floored for the first 30 minutes, and the way she kept grilling me was so frustrating that it led me to tears. I'm not a huge, like, crier when it comes to this. I guess I'm in, like, when I'm really upset, tears start falling. But essentially, she... After the first 30 minutes, she was like, I'm sorry you had a bad experience. And I was like, okay, so let me offer you some advice. If you say you follow step two, et cetera, all the time, I think that you should make it clear that after two weeks, you need to move to step two on your account because I don't think that's very clear. And to give people just a little bit like on your page, you're not being as transparent as you're telling me you are right now. And she was like, you've given me a lot to think about. Um, again, I'm really sorry for your experience, never for what I did, which my mother would teach me when I was four years old. You don't apologize by saying, I'm sorry you felt this way. You say, I'm sorry for what I did to make you feel this way. That aside, so at the end of the conversation, she said that she would think about it. I said that your apology needs to be public because this is a public issue and it doesn't need to be to me. I don't need an apology from you. The women who've developed deep eating disorders, people like Liz, people like all of the women who are in the hospital deserve an apology from you. And I'm going to hold you to that standard. She had had given her a lot to think about and we hung up. So I thought when she was going to go live the next day, she would say, she would offer that apology. The fake one being like, I'm sorry you had a bad experience, but an apology nonetheless. Um, And it just sort of ended up being a lot of, you know, veiled insults as you all put perfectly. Yeah. 
Yeah. And she, you know, she didn't realize how strong and educated that you are. You're you're like a young 21 year old, like you said, and she thought she was going to have an easy out. So it's just unfortunate that she had so many other young women following her and she was, you know, flashing this shiny object, this lifestyle, this, this way of life and this diet in front of them. And so many of them are not strong enough to realize this and they just want to follow it. They want to, they see the success. Like you said, you came to New York and you were trying to just, you know, have a great successful career in life. And you thought this was the answer, but you're smart enough to obviously see that. And it's just very, uh, you know, it's, it's upsetting that there's so many girls that, that probably won't see that. Absolutely. I think that there's a issue of exploit, exploiting young women like me and all the other college age women who've come out uh, because society, I mentioned this in my Instagram post last night, society really tells us that if we're not skinny, we're not valuable. On paper, I really do have like every accolade I could want. I've worked very hard in my 21 years of life to be, be very educated and as successful and achieve my goals. But I still felt like if I wasn't what, what she proclaims is the healthiest 18% body fat, that I was still failing in some way. And that, tr- like, what I've learned in these past few months is that, like, I'm completely valuable no matter what I look like. And for her to, for her, and not even just her, for the whole entire diet community and everyone to exploit that fear that all of us have is very toxic and it does ruin lives when you can't realize it. So I really just hope this helps people recognize that like developing a healthy relationship with food is very important, but it doesn't come through dieting and it doesn't come through restricting. It comes through loving yourself first and, and learning about health benefits and real foods as opposed to restricting. I couldn't have said it better myself. Alexis, you are a smart, bright, talented young woman, and you have a an incredible future ahead of you. And I am so proud of you for the way that you have handled this. And I wish you the best of luck in your journey. And please, please, please continue to take that time for yourself. I saw this morning you were taking a grounding walk outdoors. Continue to do that instead of reading nasty DMs. Just that is my, if that is one takeaway I can leave you with, none of those people matter. What matters is you and obviously your beautiful mother who has raised you right and your beautiful future. So. I know. I kind of want to meet and hang out with your mother, Alexis. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> totally. Like we Maybe we'll have you both on at the same time for a, for a nice little mother-daughter session. You are the wisest old soul I've ever listened to. Thank I literally you. wrote down, hurt people, hurt people. I've, I did, that's bumper sticker wisdom. I don't yeah. know. I never had that quote. Yeah, my mom is really the best. Um, but yeah, the last thing I do want to say is that I do feel like there's a lot of privilege in us sitting down to discuss something such as diet culture when there's a global pandemic, intense racism and injustice happening in this country. So I do want to be very clear that this is an important issue because it affects women everywhere. Um, But if you're focusing on the F-factor diet for like 20 hours of your day and you're not voting or you're not educating yourself about anti-racism, then you should definitely take a look at yourself and please vote in this upcoming election and continue to, you know, try and move the needle towards a better future for all of us. Can I give you a standing ovation? I know, seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Alexis, you just moved us in ways you really have no idea. I have chills and tears in my eyes. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you for giving me the platform. Hi, Jamie here again. Okay, so as I mentioned, Stacy has a special place in my heart as the co-founder of Narrative, a PR agency specializing in creative experiences and developing brand campaigns that 
permeate culture. I've always looked up to her and her approach, which is based very smartly, half on analytics and half on gut, which I think is a smart way to approach life. Stacy has a fine-tuned sense of human and subculture and translates it into her client work. And I knew as a cultural landscape junkie like myself, she'd have a keen eye on this story and some opinions on the PR aspects surrounding it. So Stacy, hi. Hi. I know you've been watching this play out and we've all had eyeballs on it and have just watched this whole kind of circus unfold. So as a PR expert who has managed the reputations of some of the biggest brands on the planet, can you just take us through some of the best practices around crisis management? Like what is the PR 101 take on responding to something like this? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, I think crisis has become a bit more complex as of late. Um, you know, sort of gone are the days when you did a press release and you just put it out on the wire or put it on your website, or perhaps you even struck a deal with a media outlet to tell your story through that outlet. And you had the ability to keep it very polished, to really control the narrative. And it was sort of like you, you put it out there and then you moved on. Um, a lot of eyeballs would be on that, that, that response, um, legal, you know, a team. I think the, the, the fundamentals of crisis are still there, um, which really are first and foremost, timeliness of, of a response, right? So the longer you wait, the, the larger the story gets and the more opportunity for it to kind of get out of hand. Um, I think being direct and very factual about what is going on and set, sort of setting the landscape and, um, and, and making sure that the facts are all there. Um, and then I think, really the icing on the cake and where the finesse comes in is sort of that empathetic piece of the message. And then the acknowledgement of people that may have been hurt or um, may have been caught in, in the crisis, right? Even if you as the brand are not accepting full responsibility for their pain, suffering, you know, whatever it may be, at least acknowledging it and keeping it a bit open-ended saying, you know, we're looking into it or we're still investigating it. Um, and, and, you know, bringing the consumer along for the ride, um, even if you need to issue another statement the next day or a week later, at least um, making sure that that there is an acknowledgement there. Because when you shut the door and say this is is the fact, period, when there are victims, whether you believe those victims have been directly harmed by you or not, it really is is setting the stage for a lot of fodder, which is going to keep the crisis going and going. And why I say that crisis is nuanced and different is because we now have introduced the consumer having their own platform. So the moment that you go out with some sort of statement, whether it's on Instagram or on your website, you have to keep in mind that you have consumers that are able to, in real time, state their opinions and start chatter around um, around the subject. And so it really needs to be thought through from many different angles before you know, deploying your strategy. Yeah. Uh, strategy, I think, is word number one, which I feel like has perhaps been lacking here. It seems to have been very, like you said, timeliness. I think we were all waiting. And then the approach when it actually did come out to us seemed very awkward and and perhaps flawed. So uh, let's talk social media and the role in all of this. So, right, exactly. Gone are the days of the press release and the standard on the wire, like here's what happened and here's our statement. We're all, we have like our own media platform at our fingertips now. So do you recommend or discourage using social as a way to communicate 
directly with your audience? And like, what are some of the watchouts when you're doing that? Sure. So it's not whether I, I, I recommend or don't recommend. I think it's, it's not even up for debate. I think the consumer expects it. So it's just a, a built in part of business these days. I think where things get tricky is when you have a very founder centric brand So meaning that the founder is the face, the founder is using their personal platform in conjunction with the brand's platform to ultimately sell, right? So that's where things get a little bit gray. When you are using your platform to sell product to somebody, there's a heightened sense of responsibility that comes along with that. So it starts to blur into the lines of advertising. And I think in terms of best practices or watchouts, when I work with a founder or when our agency works with a founder, we're always very careful to set up the strategy of how that founder is using their personal platform because the founder sort of becomes the North Star, right? They're the ones demonstrating how the product, whether it's fashion, food, a workout, how does that product show up in one's life? And they're really setting best practices for their own product. So they better mean what they say and say what they mean because you can't really go it back when times are tougher, when rubber meets the road and say, well, this is my personal platform. Don't take everything I'm saying on my personal platform as word, refer to brand platform when those things are, are so tightly intertwined and you're asking for money directly or indirectly from your audience. It, it really comes with a very, you know, big set of responsibilities. I always say to our founders, like, you know, to, mu- to whom much is given, much is expected you have women, men that are following you and then reaching into their pocketbooks and, and buying from you. So, you know, there's a lot to, to, to think about. And if you don't want to be held to that standard on your personal platform or you don't want to be the spokesperson, so to speak, for the brand, then you need to make that decision in the upfront and really decide that your personal platform is going to be for your personal life and make that incredibly clear so that your, your consumer understands and knows that. Yeah. So that's exactly what my thoughts were. And I just feel like if you, you want to put all of this stuff out there and you want to kind of like, you know, transmit your life with everybody. And then you want to turn around and kind of call people naive and dumb for somehow taking that and following that as, you know, not as gospel, but just even as what they're emulating. Like it seems like, like two different sides of a coin that, that it's not, it's not meshing. So I think what people in my, in my evaluation are looking for is just like transparency and empathy, like rather than name calling and calling people out. It seems that people are really hungry for that here. So like, what does that kind of mean to you? Yeah. I mean, broad strokes, I think, and not to be so specific about this particular situation and the details in that. But I think broad strokes, we're living in a time, particularly as the demographic skews younger and their expectation for transparency and empathy in, in the brands that they, that they follow and buy um, plays such a, a huge part in their purchasing decision. So I think Um, everybody just wants to be seen and heard. And I think especially when you are a part of this dedicated community that I would even go as far as to say border on like a cult following, which can be used as a very positive term for a brand. I mean, it's every brand's dream to establish a cult following. But with that cult following, I think, you know, the followers are so energized and so um, connected and committed to the brand that for them to not feel seen and heard, it deeply hurts them. And so I think you do a lot of damage by not 
making sure that there's an empathetic tone and that really there, there's transparency. And by the way, we, we should remember that there's so much choice, right? And so these, this, this group of, of consumers has the choice to then follow a different plan or a different product and can, can hop around so um, easily. So, you know, I, I think it's a huge disservice as a, as a brand not to, to make sure that you're weaving in empathy and, and, and transparency ultimately. Yeah. This is Christine quick um, thing that I noticed a lot in the messaging and in some of the lives and the topics that were brought up is that the message keeps changing. A lot of times, um, the person we're talking about will say, I'm an influencer. I'm not an influencer. I'm the brand. Don't follow what I'm saying because it's just, you know, what I do, but you shouldn't do it or follow the book. I think there's a lot of confusion as well. So it's not sticking to the message or the point or what you think your brand was based on and developed, um, you know, with the values that you want to put out there. So I think it's all jumbling into one big kind of messy mess. (laughs) I I agree with that. And, and Jamie knows this, you know, I think, in, in our work in PR, when we're advising founder-centric brands, because having a, a face of the brand can be so powerful and such a tool for communicating. But on the flip side, you know, at, it, sometimes when you have founders who are in, very active on social, it's almost like a PR nightmare because you're always like, oh, what, you know, there's just that much more opportunity for error. And I do think that when you have a founder who creates an audience of one. And I know Jamie's heard me sort of say this before. It's hard because when you're talking about a brand, it's sort of by a democracy, right? You have a lot of people chiming in on what they think the brand tone, voice, message should be. But when it it starts to get into this audience of one and there are not other perspectives, you know, at the table or welcome, especially if the, the people around that audience of one start to I don't want to say pander, but make suggestions for the audience of one versus making suggestions based on, you know, the landscape and and the situation. I think you can get yourself to your exact point down a a rabbit hole of like, do what I say, not what I do, but, oh, but by the way, oh, this, that, like you're, the messaging can get really, because founder is just a person, right? Like they are a human being that's, that's in, in real time on, on their platform saying things off the cuff, like everything isn't messaged, which is the beauty of it, but you better make sure you know what you're saying and stick to that and not get yourself in this type of situation where, you know, pulling receipts, like screenshots of things that happened six months ago. And and then now you're, you're saying something different. I mean, it's all out there, right? So like you really have to be strategic and careful. Yeah. Look, I couldn't agree more. It's funny. I was thinking about this this morning. Like I, um, I was looking through my Instagram to find something that was old and it was like a picture of me having lunch poolside. And I was having like, just like a turkey burger and some fruit. And I'm like, I'm vegan now. This was a po- picture that I posted. Like a y- I was pregnant. So it wasn't that long ago. I chose to go plant-based after I had my second son. Um, I could see somebody pulling that out. Like I do plant-based, you know, I promote a plant-based lifestyle. If something like this happened to me, it'd be very easy for somebody to go back one year and be like, oh, she ate a turkey burger. And like people change, that's okay. And I think nobody's saying that's not okay to, you know, have said something two years ago and be a different person two years later. I think where it gets really confusing is when you're getting caught up in the minutia of arguing all these little like micro points, instead of taking a step back and saying, community, I hear you. 
I hear you. We want to do better. We want to look inside. We want to evaluate where maybe we've taken missteps and we want to let you know that that's all forthcoming. That's, I think that's all anyone's looking for as far as your PR background right there. Yes. You know, like I had said earlier, acknowledge, 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 and then bring the audience along for the ride, right? It's, it's okay to say, you know what? I acknowledge that this and this is happening. Let me look into it and I'll let you know. I'll bring, I'm going to bring you along for the ride and I'm going to keep you abreast every step of the way. Because by the way, that's what you're doing when you're selling. So you can't do that when you're selling, but then when a crisis hits, it suddenly wall up. You know, you're bringing them along in your life every day. I'm waking up. Here's my breakfast. I'm on the way to work. And then suddenly, you know, silence and, 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 and just secrecy. Like the, the audience is too smart. And I think that really, for me, has been sort of the interesting part of watching this whole thing unfold is I think there's a bit of underestimating the intelligence of the audience. And, and as I watch the comments and things after the lives or, you know, the, um, the pre-recorded statements, you know, the audience is smart. And so that to me has been the most interesting part of this is watching the audience make their own kind of assumptions. And again, leaving it so open-ended and not, and leaving it, you know, punctuating it, so to speak, and saying, this is what it is, period, has allowed the audience to take on almost like a crime investigation mentality as a group. And it's so fascinating to see this dynamic play out um, when there are ways from a PR perspective that I feel like this could have been prevented really in the upfront of the way it was dealt with. I truly feel like this is going to be a case study um, of like a PR crisis that is studied at colleges and universities. I mean, I studied PR at NYU. We studied cases like this, what was done right, what was done wrong. And it's been a really interesting new uh, wave of, of the use of social and influencer that I've I don't think I've ever seen before. So to kind of wrap this up, have you ever seen a brand turn around from a scandal like this and bounce back? And if so, what did they do right? Yeah. So what I will say is, yes, you know, there have been, people have a short memory. So yes, there have been a lot of of crisis management situations over the past, say, five years where I've seen brands get into some really hot water and I'm kind of like, how are they going to turn this around? And I I would say the number one piece of advice and the number one tactic that I've seen brands use and be really successful with is using social, ironically, to measure sentiment in, in their audience, because that's the beauty of social. In, we can, in real time, see what people are saying, feeling, thinking. Whereas before, you would send the statement out kind of into the ether, and, and who knows? You know, people are talking in their own groups. But very quickly, with one sweep, you can measure, okay, this isn't landing, that they're not taking it in the way that I had meant it to be taken, I need to pivot and change my messaging and then very quickly pivot and address the concerns of the audience that, that it's data, you know, you have the data. So I think, um, yes, I've seen brands bounce back and it's all about uh, audience sentiment and then pivoting your message and ultimately taking responsibility at the end of it. You heard it here first. I feel like at the end of every one of these interviews, I've wanted to like stand up and give a standing ovation because it's just like, Yes, like sensible. Yes, it's data, you know, and don't attack 21 year old girls. What's that? I said, don't attack 21 year old girls. Right. That was Heidi. And and (laughs) they're coming out. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we're all saying, right? Be a human, 
be empathetic, be open to your community, let people feel seen and heard, and maybe don't do all the talking, do some listening is what I'm taking away from this. And don't underestimate women's intelligence. Mm-hmm. Amen. So is. much yes to all of those points. Yes. Yes. It's Thank the quote of the so day. Thank you for joining us. This was so enlightening uh, and really helpful for us to all take a step back. And we will continue along with the rest of the world to watch this all unfold. So thank you at home for joining us. Don't forget to follow us on the gram at Off The Gram Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll see you next time. 